Let's look together this morning in the book of uh, 1 Peter. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2, and I'll read those verses to you in just a few minutes. Uh, I want to give you a, a little bit of an update on some things. Uh, first is, a couple weeks ago, um, well, let me back up. I was on study leave last week, Chad and I were, and it was great. And so thank you for letting me go. Uh, there'll be more to come on what I was able to plan out and more about what Chad was doing. Um, but we've got, uh, well, by God's grace, I got 2024 mapped out sermon-wise. And so that's a huge relief and a big deal for me. And so that's just one thing, but we'll talk more about that in the future. Um, a couple of weeks ago, in advance of my study leave, uh, I, I need to offer an apology. So I said that it was the greatest two weeks of my year to which there are people who are very close to me who thought that me leaving town and leaving them here uh, and having no responsibility at home um, ironically was the greatest two weeks of my year. Um, just wanted to publicly say I, I apologize. That's, that's not what I meant. Uh, um, but the couch has been comfortable. Um, and uh, I'm learning how to cook, and I've worn these clothes three straight days. Um, but sincerely, I, I didn't mean it that way, and if anyone took it that way, I, I'm sorry. Uh, my fault. Um, my bad. Uh, I make those mistakes too often. Um, so wanted to apologize for that, but say that study week was just okay, and... Uh, I'm really glad to be home. Um, uh, so, all right. Next, uh, next thing, this coming Thursday is when I have my follow-up scans. And so that'll be Thursday at 3 o'clock at Duke. And so if you're the praying sort and you think of me every now and then and would like to pray, I sure would appreciate that. So that'll be Thursday at 3 o'clock. And I should be able to have some results that evening. So Doc told me to plan on spending at least four hours. And so uh, hopefully we'll have something when I drive back uh, to town. So if you want to pray again, I certainly would appreciate that. All right, next. Don't forget that we're doing this whole survey of the Bible thing this year and that all of us have to answer these big questions. Where did I come from? Uh, what happened? Uh, what can fix it? And where am I going? Where are we going? And I want to try to convince you, I'd like for you to be open to the idea that the Bible it gives us a story to actually answer all of those questions, the big questions. So where did I come from? Uh, what happened? Uh, how can this be fixed and where are we going is laid out for us with creation and rebellion and redemption and restoration. So if you're wondering what in the world happened to the world, I'll tell you, rebellion. We rebelled against God and that injected poison, sin, death into everything, us, others, creation. It's a mess because of rebellion. Uh, if you're wondering, where are we going? Oh, restoration. Heaven and earth reunited, sin no more, no death, no more tears of sorrow. That's where we're headed. I I'm increasingly looking forward to that. Uh, wh where did I come? God made you. He made you in his image. You're not an accident. You have 
innate, intrinsic worth and glory. God created you. And what's going to fix things? Only one thing. Jesus and what he did through his life and death and resurrection. That's it. There is nothing, there is nothing that can fix what's wrong with the world other than that. Not policy, not power, not the right person in the right place. No, it's only Jesus. So this morning, we're going to look together at 1 Peter, and I'll tell you on the front end, this is an identity sermon. This sermon, these words in 1 Peter are telling us about our identity and who we are. So listen to this as I read 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, we're here in your presence. I'm sure that there are all kinds of agendas that we have in our hearts and our minds of what we hope to get out of this or whether we're skeptical or cynical or just tired or needing the word of encouragement or we're really excited to learn or we have no idea. We all, whether we can express it or not, have expectations for what will happen. And Lord, just want to simply ask that you would cause grace and peace to be multiplied in our lives. No matter what we're going through, no matter what we're thinking, would you multiply grace in our lives? Would you, would you cause a true, uh, lasting peace to grow in us? Would you, Holy Spirit, take the truth of what we just listened to together and cause that truth to catch fire in our lives? Keep it from just being an intellectual exercise. Cause the truth to uh, uh, be persuasive to our intellects, but, but cause the truth to move us to reach our soul, to reach the core of our being, to transform us and change us so that, uh, so that receiving your truth doesn't look like passing a test on a piece of paper, so that receiving the truth this week looks like our entire being living as if what we learn today is true and is more powerful and more believable than any other narrative that's available. Do that, we ask, and whatever else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The world that we live in, we live in a time people don't know who they are. We don't understand what it means to be male or female. We live during a time in which a lot of us are, feel a deep sense of purposelessness, not sure about meaning. And please don't hear anything that I'm saying in any other way other than I'm trying to pastorally describe the world that we're in. It's the only way I want you to hear it. 
We live in a time where people don't know who they are. And I bet you feel that whether um, you're in middle school or younger. I bet you feel that at times if you're in high school, college, if you've been in your career for 10, 20, 30 years. I bet you have this nagging sense of, is there any real purpose to what I'm doing? Is there any substantive meaning that I'm getting out of what I'm doing and how I'm living? Bet sometimes you even think about that in your relationships. What, what is the purpose of this? How in the world can there be any meaning in this? I mean, we, we're living in a time where there's wars going on. There are senseless killings. We're, we're living during a time where there's just mass confusion everywhere. Where do we go to find truth? There's so much propaganda out there. I don't even know where to find truth sometimes. I'm not talking about the reality that I believe the Bible is ultimate. I know I can find truth there. I just mean whatever people are talking about. I don't even know hardly what to believe sometimes. People struggle to deal with truth, like the way things really are, what's actually happening in their lives, what's really going on. People want to ignore that. The reason I mention all this is because I want to show you that even though we live during a time where people don't know who they are, the four-part story tells us who we are. The four-part story tells you who you are. That's the point. That's what I want to try to show you in Peter today. That's what I want to try to show you in these first two verses. The four-part story tells you who you are. So we're going to look at two things on our journey today, two stops on our journey. The first one is this. Where are we? Well, when you look at these first two verses, this is where we are. Exile. Did you notice Peter said that in the first verse? He's writing to elect exiles. He's writing to exiles. And he even highlights where they are. All those places that I read that are kind of hard to pronounce, it's modern-day Turkey. He's writing to the regions of Turkey and where God's people are, and they are exiles. He writes to those in the eastern part. He writes to those in the western part, the central part, and the northern part. He's writing to those people that are part of the diaspora. They're scattered around. They're exiles. You know what it means to be an exile? It means that you are on this perpetual journey. It means that you have this deep sense of being displaced. It means that you know that you're scattered from some, somewhere. It means that you are in this perpetual state of insecurity. And guess what? We're in exile today too. We are actually exiles. It may not feel like that to you sometimes, but I bet deeper down it does. Because all of us struggle with one way or another, at one point or another. Do I really belong here? Do I really belong there? Peter writes the same thing to us. We're, we're exiles. And, and just to try to make this even more clear, an exile is different from a native. You know, a native is, um, is someone that has a temptation to think that they actually own something that they don't and are also 
under the temptation of thinking, I'm scared of progress. I see it as a threat. That's not an exile. Those are the temptations of a native. And we're not tourists. You know, tourists are just all about consuming and zero commitment. That's not us either. We're exiles. We are a displaced people that have this perpetual sense of insecurity about where do we actually belong. We know we're on a journey. We just feel displaced. Peter is writing to us. And that's the first question. Where are we? Well, we're in exile. Here's the second stop for us today. And you can imagine this will go a little bit longer. Who are we? Who are we? Who are we? Well, when you look at these verses, it tells us three things about us. Three things. Um, We're loved, we are set apart, and we're forgiven. That's who we are. And let's look at these three. We're gonna take them in reverse order. We're gonna start with forgiven. Notice the last phrase that's there, that we're sprinkled with blood uh, for obedience to Jesus Christ. You know, when you hear sprinkle with blood, it immediately takes you, I hope, in some way, back to the Old Testament. It's meant to make you think backwards. When you think about sprinkling of blood, Peter's talking and referencing Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, if you were alive before the coming of Jesus and you got sideways with your neighbor, sideways with God, guess what had to happen? There was a cost to that. You're you're inappropriate, unloving to your neighbor, you're unloving to God, there's a cost for that. A payment had to be made. It was a sacrifice. There were animal sacrifices that actually made a payment so that the relationship between parties could be reconciled. So that to get sideways with God, to disobey God, meant that it cost something. It meant that a payment needed to be made. So when Peter is highlighting for us, sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, he's taking us back to remember that when we disobey and when we're out of alignment with God, out of alignment with other people, it costs something. And I want you to realize that everything costs something. Uh, Whatever food you want to eat is going to cost you something. Where you want to live, how you want to get around, transportation, it all costs you something. Everything costs something. There's a payment required for everything. But you know, it's not just monetary. There are other payments and other costs that are required as well. Let's go slowly and walk through this and see if this can connect with our own lives. Let's start at a very safe place in thinking about cost and payment. I want you to think about those that you know best I want you to think relationally. I want you to think about not only those that know you best, not only those that you know best, but people that know you the best. And I'm talking about a closeness with which uh, this person knows how to push your buttons. Parents, this sound like uh, little people in your life? Or maybe not so little people anymore? Who is it in your life that knows things about you that not too many other people know? Who is it that, um, 
that you know so well, it's not just that you could push their buttons, but you know where they are vulnerable and weak and, and where they have a soft spot. And to hit that spot would be to really hurt them. Those kinds of relationships is what I'm talking about. And inevitably, those that you are closest with, those people that know you the best and you know them the best and you know their weaknesses, you know how to push their buttons and make them mad, all this kind of stuff, inevitably, there's going to be some type of conflict. And in that conflict, my hunch is, if you're like me, there are times that in the middle of that conflict, you think, oh, I can push this button. I can, I can take this cheap shot. And you do it. And in that moment, when, when, you've, when you've injected something into that conflict that you shouldn't, that only you know about, and you did it to hurt that other person, if you do that and the other person says, whoa, if they have enough internal fortitude to say, whoa, we need to back up here and hit pause. Usually that doesn't happen, right? It just encourages the other person to punch back, metaphorically, right? But if they have enough wherewithal to pull back and say, hold on a minute and create space, there needs to be space here. We need to give this some oxygen and time. The purpose of doing that is that the person that pulled the cheap shot would come to their senses and realize, oh man, I did something I, sh I shouldn't in the midst of that conflict. And they would go back to the person that they offended and say, hey, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. A payment has to be made. There's a cost for that mistake. When you verbally do something you shouldn't, it requires a verbal apology, right? in which the person comes to you and says, look, I was sorry, I'm sorry, uh, I shouldn't have done that, no excuses, uh, I'm gonna try not to do it again, please forgive me. Those words need to be said, don't they? And when those words are said, a payment has been made, restoration is had. Now, let's ramp it up a little bit. How about situations in which someone continues to do the same thing over and over and over, and you think to yourself, you know what? I'm gonna need more than just a verbal apology. I need a little more time to see that your behavior is actually going to change. Ever had to do that? Parents, you ever had to do that with kids? Not just wanting a verbal apology, but saying, oh, we're going to give this some space to see if you're really sorry because you're going to make different decisions next time. I want to see a change in order to believe that this is put behind us. A little bit bigger cost, a little bit bigger payment. It takes a little bit more time to make that payment. There's a little more cost endured because of that. Well, what if... Next level, what if you are a servant of the United States government and as a servant of the government, you, you are willing and have sold classified documents and you made public the names of other servants of our government that are abroad and you made their names public and you compromised natural, national security and because of what you have done, not only compromise our security, it meant that a bunch of people died. 
Do you think that for that kind of breach, for that kind of uh, conflict, and that kind of mistake, that you could simply publicly say, hey, I'm sorry. Does that cut it? Is that gonna work? That's not a payment that's appropriate for what has been done, is it? And what we need to understand is that we have committed cosmic treason against God. It's not just that we've made little mistakes. It's that God created us to be a certain type of people and he blessed us to be able to do it. And he gave us all the freedom that we could ever imagine or want. And he promised to be with us. And we spit in his face and said, I don't want to live that way, God. I'm not even sure I want you to be with me all the time. I want to go my own way and do my own thing. And because of that, we brought death and disease into everything. We confess this morning that the world is what? Cold and broken and angry? Do you feel that? That's because of us. That's not God's fault. That's our fault. And we can't just see the destruction everywhere and think, Lord, um, I know I spit in your face and you created me, but, uh, and I wanted to go my own way, but, um, you know, I'll do better next time. The payment that that required, the payment that that demanded, the cost of our rebellion was the death of his son. And a loving God, a loving God does not overlook the payment that is needed. That's not love. The love of God is that he made the payment. The love of God is that he made the payment for what we did. The love of God is that he looked at us as rebels and enemies that spit in his face and he said, I will absorb the cost of that. I will make that payment. I will do everything that is required to bring us back together. Peter is saying, you who have been sprinkled in the blood of Christ, you see, until we admit that Jesus had to die for us, this, hasn't, this message hasn't gripped us. Until we're convinced that we have no hope outside of Jesus, this message hasn't gotten through. Because this message that Jesus made the payment, God made the payment that we should make, and he did it for us, is the only thing that not only can win us back, but that can humble us that can get us outside of ourselves, that puts us in a position of having to receive everything from God so that everything is of grace. And if we're willing to admit that we need Jesus to die for us, for me, and we are convinced that this is what happened and there is no hope outside of Jesus, and if that has humbled us, then what happens? is that we become a thankful people. We become a people that 
are full of gratitude toward God. And you know what that looks like? Peter tells you here, what does he connect to being sprinkled with blood? For the obedience to Jesus Christ. You see, our obedience flows from what Christ has done to make the payment so that we are so overwhelmed with the love of God. The love of God didn't skip the payment. The love of God made the payment and gives it to us. And we are so humbled that it leads to a life of thankfulness and obedience. Well, the second characteristic is not just that we're forgiven. Look at the other one. We're set apart, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This means that in the amazing mystery and the amazing love of God, he sets apart his people for good use. It means that he designates his people as a special people that he loves, that he will be with and never leave. It means no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, God looks upon you as a special people that he loves. No matter what is happening, the spirit is within. And we are simply set apart to serve him. And here's the third thing, loved. Look at what it says. Peter says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God our Father. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God our Father. When Peter says elect according to foreknowledge, he's talking about pre-love. He's highlighting for us that God has pre-loved his people, meaning that his love predates your love, meaning that he set his love upon you before you were even born, meaning that he has chosen who he will love in this special way. Have you ever thought about, have you ever thought about could there be something more going on than just my effort and, and my decisions? Have you ever thought about, could something else be happening other than just what I'm doing and deciding to do and the effort that I put forth and, and the decisions that I make? Have you ever thought about there could be something behind all of that? Because that's what Peter's talking about. He's talking about all of our responses, all of our obedience, all of our decisions. There's something behind all of that. And it's God. And it's his purposes. You see, Peter can say these words. Peter can communicate this concept of election and God choosing because he knew it in his own experience. If you want to read about this, you can in Matthew chapter 16. It's the day in which Peter said that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Lord. And you know what Jesus says to him immediately in response? Peter, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. For the rest of his life, Peter could never take credit, even for his faith. For the rest of his life, he could never think, oh, well, I'm different from those people because I made a better decision than they have. I took him more information and I made a better decision. Peter could never think that. 
The reason why he understood that Jesus was the Christ and the Messiah, that he was God, was because God had revealed that to Peter. And Peter's response to God revealing that to him was to say the words, Jesus, you're the Christ. So for Peter to say these words about election, it's, it's how he came to understand what his relationship with Jesus was based on. It was based upon something that God did to Peter, inside Peter. The effect of that was Peter saying, I believe Jesus is the Christ. You see, God had to touch someone before they could say Jesus is who he is. God's love had to predate Peter's love. God's activity had to come before Peter's activity. This idea of election is really all over the Bible. And maybe you've heard of it before. Maybe you've been taught it's a terrible idea. I don't know. And if you're interested in learning more about it, would love to talk with you more about it. It'd be great. Because there are plenty of places where the words are explicitly given. But I want you to understand that it's not something that's cold and clinical and, and, and makes you a better Christian, a better follower. It's not that at all. Beloved, it is the very assumption of everything. Let me show you. Do you remember the story of Jonah? Do you remember that story? The punchline of Jonah is this. Salvation is from the Lord. Jonah didn't want it. He didn't want it for the Ninevites, did he? Matter of fact, he said, I knew you were a merciful God. I knew you were gonna do this. His assumption is that God is merciful. His assumption is that God loves to save and redeem. That's why he would say salvation originates with God. Not Jonah, not anybody else that proclaims it, with God. How about a favorite verse that we love in our modern day and time? Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. God's plans predate your plans. And guess what God, guess who God was talking to? His people who were about to go into exile. In the worst of situations, in the worst of circumstances, God has plans. How about, how about at the end of Acts where Paul is with this group of people and they're on a ship and people are freaking out and scared to death because the, the storm is horrific and people know that they're gonna be obliterated by this storm. You remember what Paul says? Hey, stop trying to jump out in the boat and make it your own way. Stay in the ship. God says we're gonna make it to shore but we all have to stay in the ship. You get it? The assumption is that God is in complete control and sovereign over everything, and we're absolutely responsible to stay in the ship. You leave the ship, you die. You stay in the ship, ship crash, ship wreck, gonna be dangerous, you live. God is in complete control, and yet we are responsible to do exactly what God tells us to do. There are things that are going on behind your decisions. There are things that are going, beyond, going on behind all of your efforts. God is doing something that at times we can't even imagine in our own lives, even in the world. 
Peter is writing this so that we would be comforted with the love of God. You see, maybe you've heard, well, if this is true about this election stuff, um, God choosing, predestined, all this stuff, well, well, doesn't that just promote laziness? Doesn't that mean that we shouldn't even pray? I mean, if God's in control, why should we pray? If this is really true, why should we do anything? Well, it reminds me of a story of a pastor from a little more than 100 years ago who told the story of going to see a friend of his in the hospital. And he went to see his friend in the hospital, and his friend said, you know, pastor, I, I can't figure out what I need to do. The doc says, if I take this medicine, I'll live. If I don't take it, it's going to die. I'm going to die. But I don't know what God's plan is. I don't know what his plan is. And the pastor said, well, this is an easy one to answer. God's plan is, if you take the medicine, you're going to live. And if you decide not to take the medicine, his plan is that you will die. Beloved, all of our decisions, all of our actions, all of our efforts, God is at work through them and behind them, and sometimes he even works against us to accomplish what he wants. You see, to be in exile, to be in exile, to live as if we're on this journey where we feel scattered and displaced, where there's this constant sense of insecurity, it, it takes the shape of this. When you're in exile, you're constantly thinking about, well, where did I really come from? Depending on how long you've been in exile, you might not even remember where you started. And so you're wondering constantly about your past. Where did I really come from? What was it like there? And it's not just that as exiles we're thinking about this past that's somewhat mysterious that we might not even know about. It's that we're concerned about the present because when you're in exile, you've, you feel this threats every now and then, sometimes more than others. You feel threats. Well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. I'm confused about what to do right now, today, in my present life. I'm not sure what to do. When you're in exile, you don't just concern yourself with the past. You're not even sure about the present and you're not sure about what you should do to accomplish this or that or even what you're supposed to do. And you certainly are concerned about the future. If you're in exile, it's, I'm so displaced and I'm on this journey, I don't even know where I'm gonna end up. I don't even know where that is. I'm not even sure exactly what it means and how I'll know when I get there. And do you see what Peter is doing? What Peter is saying is the gospel addresses who we are. You want to know more about your past? Well, let me tell you. Here it is. God has set his love on you before you were born. You feel like you're in exile? Well, let me tell you your past. God has loved you even before you were born. You're concerned about your present? Well, let me tell you about the present. The Holy Spirit has set you apart so that you can make it day by day. So if you have to, you can take it one hour at a time, one day at a time. 
Because the Spirit has set you apart and he will not leave you. You are sanctified. And your future, here's what your future looks like living in exile. Remembering what Jesus has done to pay for all that you can't pay for. And being overwhelmed with the reality of that leads to gratitude and what, what you have to look forward to tomorrow is obedience because of Jesus. And you can do it one hour at a time. You can do it one day at a time. You see, Peter was writing to a people who were in exile and persecution was happening and it was on the rise. Peter writes this in the early 60s and guess who was on the, uh, on the throne, if you will, in the Roman Empire? Nero. And these people are scattered throughout the Roman Empire and they're terrified. And Peter's saying, here's who you are. You were loved in your past. You're set apart in your present. And the future is all with Jesus because of what he has done. That's who you are. When I was in college, my dad uh, sent me at least one handwritten letter a week. Every week. Some weeks I got two or three. And maybe we should receive these words here in First Peter, like getting a letter from our father. And I hope you'll personalize this for you. But what if you go back and read these words and you think to yourself, all right, I need to receive this as if my father is writing me something. And what if the letter goes something like this? You fill in your name. I'll fill in mine. Hey, Dave, I know you're in a difficult place. It takes a while to get adjusted when you're in a new location. There'll always be this sense of, you're not really knowing if you really belong there. You always have that sense of, I don't really know if I'm adjusted. But Dave, you need to remember that I have loved you before you were born and that my love is so powerful that it actually shapes and characterizes every moment of your life. So be encouraged, Dave. The Holy Spirit's at work in you, and he sets you apart so that you can serve him right where you are, going through whatever you're going through. And that's all because, don't forget this, Dave, it's all because Jesus has made the payment that you couldn't. And that your relationship with me, your father, is because of what he has done. And I sent him. And that payment's been made and it's all of grace and shows you my love so that you don't have to fear. Just keep going. And each day, follow Jesus, obey him. That's who you are. And friends, that's what brings us to the table.